All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche. They're the layer one blockchain that is fast, stable, and scalable. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. For now, let's get into it. What I see Visa doing is using this very stripped down, very fast, very decentralized blockchain and slowly kind of building on things like, okay, here's charge back protection. Here's fraud protection. Here's, you know, reversibility. Here's like all of these things that would be in a typical payments network. And like, they're just slowly going to just like port all of these concepts onto blockchain rails. But right now, blockchain rails are like, just like very dumb payments networks. You know, you send something, you can't get it back. You send something to a wrong address. Like, you know, it's gone forever. Um, there is no concept of fraud. That's why credit card processors have such a hard time interacting with crypto. But I, I think this is going to actually bridge that gap. All right, everyone, welcome back to what I think is the last roundup of the year on Bell Curve. Uh, we got Michael, who is uh, gallivanting around Europe, I think, possibly right now, and uh, so was not able to make it. Uh, but thankfully, we have the better Mike uh, joining us, calling in from a negative 40 degree Bozeman. I'm, 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 allowed to roast, I'm allowed to roast him if he's gone. Yeah, you're uh, allowed to roast him. Just like I'm allowed to uh, roast Vance's like, sk uh, skater hair from uh, like 90 skater hair that he's got going on right now. <laughs> Drunken right some, some sweet lettuce, yeah. I mean, Michael's hair is absurd right now, so I'm not the one you're looking for. <laughs> Fair enough. But this isn't the last episode either. We're doing the predictions app. We're doing well. predictions. We have yeah. predictions. We have the predictions app, but I think the last like roundup of the week, so of the year, so... Um, yeah, we do have the predictions up next week. Um, all right, guys, there, there are a couple thoughts I had for the, for the roundup this week. Um, and I know Vance, we don't have you for too long here. One was, uh, visas news. Uh, the next is Yuga labs, uh, hired, uh, I think it was like the CEO or the COO of Activision. And then the third was, um, some stuff going on with DCG. So Vance, in your mind, what, what was the big news of the week? Uh, I mean, other than those, I spent last night reading and not cause I, had to more because more I thought it was just like really interesting. The CFTC, SEC, and SDNY complaints against uh, the FTX crew. Those were, I mean, it's always interesting to look back and see how it really worked. And, you know, what struck me is not only how early the fraud started, but they didn't just blow $10 billion. They probably blew close to $20 billion. Like, $10 billion was the whole... They probably made a couple billion market making. They probably made a couple billion on Seoul at least. You know, probably more than that. Probably like ten. Like they, this was not just a, a massive fraud, but these people are just idiots. Like they just lost so much money. It's mechanically hard to do. Um, but I thought the complaints were really interesting. Did you think it was interesting that Gary and Caroline flipped, which is the news that came out yesterday? Yeah, I mean, reading into the details of it, you see all these massive loans they took the biggest loan that Gary Wang took was $200,000. And so, you know, you, you kind of wonder, like, what was the interpersonal dynamics of the whole situation? And, and Gary, I'm sure he knew what he was doing was wrong, but, like, he didn't seem like he was in it for, like, the power, the money, the prestige in the same way that SBF was. But in the complaint, you can kind of stitch together how it worked. Gary, monitor, or Gary altered the code and led that side. You know, Caroline was kind of the money woman. She took the money, she received it, she knew where it came from, she spent it. And SBF was kind of, you know, puppeteering the whole thing. And you kind of get this 
interesting like tapestry of like the interpersonal dynamics of like SBF and Caroline who were maybe dating and SBF and Gary Wang and he was probably very domineering over him and you know the open questions are where's Nashad uh where's Trabuco uh but I think those are forthcoming you know that was the big you know uh thing about the SDNY announcement Damian Williams said we're not done we're, we're coming after more people mm. where is Tabasco where is that guy he was all <laughs> over the place there's a Someone tweet the that is there's a tweet that's held up just so unbelievably poorly, which is why, you know, when he when he stepped down, he's like, why do journalists feel the need to ascribe anything other than the need to go over water quickly? You know, why are you basically reading into me stepping down? And one month later, this entire this entire fraud gets uncovered. So not looking so good uh, in retrospect there. But but it looks like Caroline will will not be prosecuted for any of the crimes related to FTX. The tax stuff is different. The SEC civil complaint is different. So is the CFTC. Um, it looks like she's going to have to disgorge any profits that were made. And like, you know, the government gets to calculate that. So that can be a very, very large number, uh, potentially that she doesn't have access to. But it doesn't look like she's going to actually do any jail time, which I thought was pretty interesting. Hmm. What do you think? And last thing on on this entire situation, because we're we're putting this in our rear view for for twenty twenty two. But but what did you think about this? There, there were talks about clawbacks, right? So there was an announcement that the um, John Ray was going to be seeking clawbacks, basically from the political donations that SBF made. I think it was basically ring fenced around that particular set of of donations. But you know, SBF, you know, we kind of keep getting more and more details about the money that he spread around crypto and the people that he either gave loans to or paid people off with or whatever. And I think the big question is, what like, are those clawbacks going to happen? Who are the clawbacks going to apply to? What's the time frame that the, claw, the, the clawbacks are going to be applied on? So do you have any thoughts? I don't know if you saw that article, but do you have any thoughts on the clawbacks? I mean, it's going to be a, a battle to get the money back. Um, you know, if SPF gave the money to somebody who spent it on somebody who spent it on something like do you get to go after like the third derivative of the person who took SBF's money? I, I don't think so. Um, and so I think it's going to be a negotiation where it's, you know, give us the money or we're going to sue you. Um, and if we sue you, it's going to cost a set amount of legal fees. And so the incentives are skewed to settle basically, but I don't think all that money is coming back. I think a lot of it is just, you know, kind of gone at this point. Um, but yeah, wrecked. The the photos of him going to the airport are also just uh, brutal. The Fox Hill diet. He actually looked pretty good. Um, you know, I actually like, thought he looked good too. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> he looked turns better out, than like, not being before. on amphetamines and like eating you know, real food is actually good for you. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's so true. He actually does look healthier than I've seen him in years. He looks way healthier. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> the the worst that we have ever seen him was at that Bahamas conference when he had like the longer oh like God. mop hair and he was like yeah. really kind of like bigger. With when he was trying to convince Bill Clinton to come on board. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. That is not the worst time. The worst time was that video that got produced. Do you guys remember this video? Yes. That yeah, the one was where he's fake sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> so I, in my head up till that, do you remember the picture that you had for a long time was him like when he just entered into crypto and he was kind of this skinny guy with this big wiry hair. And then suddenly you kind of looked at him in this video. It's like, dude, I thought you were a vegan. <laughs> I thought you were a vegan, brother. What's going on? I want to talk about Visa actually. So v Visa basically proposed, um, it was Catherine, Catherine Gu, I think who lead, is like either on the, I think she's on the crypto infrastructure team at Visa. She was previously at uh, JP Morgan and Anchorage and Gauntlet. 
um, like pretty, she's pretty crypto native, I'd call it. And um, she posted this thing, which is a big Visa announcement. Visa pro is pro now proposing to do uh, automatic payments using Starknet. Um, and, and I think their proposal, the way I understand it, is they want to set up these like self-custodial wallets where you could use a account uh, account abstraction method to set up automatic recurring payments on Starknet. Um, the way that ETH is set up right now does not support this. So like if you think about the just like how the ETH network works today, you have two different types of accounts. You have uh, EOAs, like externally owned accounts uh, that are controlled by private keys. And then you have contract accounts, which are essentially smart contracts. This introduces this, I think, I mean, Vance, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but like a third type of account, which is an account abstraction, which I remember Vitalik writing about like several years ago. And this would basically combine user accounts and smart contracts into a single type of account, which then I think what you can do there is then you can start running automatic payments through the use of smart contracts. It is similar to, what was the proposal? I think it was EIP 1337 that allowed for like subscriptions on the block, like subscriptions on the on, on Ethereum. Um, so it seems maybe similar to that. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was really cool that Visa's, uh, they're working with like the Argent wallet. They're working with like, they're pushing this like self-custody narrative um, and use case. They're like, they're working with Starknet and L2s. Like, I don't know. I just thought it was really cool to see Visa pushing into this. It's it's a well-defined market. It already has product market fit. This is a really good, good use of a blockchain, and it's pushing on one of the key things that Ethereum doesn't have yet, which is account abstraction. And Vitalik has is, is actually put out a piece of research which effectively on ethel one would allow for account abstraction by the creation of an alternate mempool just for account abstraction transactions. And so like this is one of the main things that, especially with things like uh, payments and gaming, that is a feature that people absolutely need. And... You know, if you think about Starkware uh, in a very concrete, uh, you know, use case for this, um, you can do gasless transactions on, on on Starkware. So, like, if you're a game developer, you don't actually need to go and pay gas for every single transaction. You can just, you know, abstract that away on the back end. Like, once that comes to ETHL1 and the other L2s, like, that is going to be a really big piece of, of adoption that pushes companies into this. So, it's positive. Um I want to see the follow yeah. through all of these corporate announcements. That's kind of always what I, I wonder is like, what's going to be the actual product that gets right. pushed out. I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, that's, that's always what it comes down to. Also, this stuff just takes a really long time, right? Like JP Morgan started working on quorum back in like 2015 and they're now finally just, I think they just did their first trade a couple months ago on, on Polygon, right? That trade that we talked about. So um, yeah, I don't know. I'm torn on this. Like on one hand, uh, I can see this world where like, okay, you open your visa app. It feels like this normal app with no seed phrase, just like your biometric. It's got a, an account abstraction wallet on the back end. You can make USDC payments to like merchants or to apps, instant settlement to merchants, no bank fees, non-custodial mass adoption is here. Boom. Super exciting. On the other hand, you've got like, it's visa, right? Visa is not our friend. They have a business model that is like kind of rent seeking on behalf of banks who in exchange defend Visa from competition. It's like kind of, uh, I don't know, just like they just they just force businesses to collect fees. They just collect fees from everyone and, and have this business model that forces businesses to do this, right? It's like a sales tax um, that get, end up, ends up getting paid to bankers by moving a few numbers over the internet. So like that is their business model today. So on one hand, I'm like, 
I don't, I don't know. I'm torn between that. And I'm curious to get your guys' take. I, well, hold on. We made the comparison to these things take, I feel differently about this news from Visa than I did for Quorum with JP Morgan, because this makes a lot of sense to me, this Visa n- announcement, because the core business of Visa is basically batching and processing large uh, groups of payments. And I think they've taken a look at Starkware and said, hey, this is a step function improvement in technology that helps my core business. I basically just think they've identified a use case that makes a lot more sense. Whereas I always kind of looked at JP Morgan and thought this is a little bit of innovation theater. No offense if I, maybe I'm like totally missing something, but there's kind of JPM coin and there's all this sort of nebulous enterprise blockchain stuff that at least my personal opinion, I'm happy to be proven wrong here, but I've never really looked at it as making a lot of intuitive sense. This visa seems like a bit of a different announcement to me. I also, I don't know, I would push back a little bit on it's the bankers and they're doing evil stuff. I don't know. At a certain point, these are companies that perform services. And I think one thing that, like Jason, you and I have talked a little bit recently about public goods. There are a lot of people that are basically saying there are these blockchains and they're going to be public goods and they're not going to need to extract fees or value from the services that they're providing. And I would like kind of gently push back on that and say, we're in the very early stage of a lot of these companies and networks and they can get by for now. The expectation is not necessarily that they extract rent or value, but ultimately blockchains are going to have to figure out a way to do that. So I would like kind of gently push back on that particular point of view. I guess the, I guess my pushback there was like the real, what this is in my mind is centralized crypto with your name stamped, stamped on each transaction, which kind of like, I don't know, does defeat the purpose a little bit of like, Visa sitting in between these transactions. I don't know. I, I might be honestly misunderstanding what they're building too. But one one way to kind of think about this is so if you if you think about a payments network, um, and you think about blockchains in parallel, blockchains are like a very stripped down version of a of a proper payments network that these people run. And so, like what what is a payments network? Obviously, it's the ability to send money. It's it's things like fraud protection. It's things like being able to reverse transactions. Uh, it, it's things like compliance. And, and like what I see Visa doing is using this very stripped down, very fast, very decentralized blockchain, and slowly kind of building on things like okay, here's chargeback protection. Here's fraud protection. Here's you know reversibility. Here's like all of these things that would be in a typical payments network. And like they're just slowly going to just like port all of these concepts onto blockchain rails, but. Right now, blockchain rails are like just like very dumb payments networks. You know, you send something, you can't get it back. You send something to a wrong address, like, you know, it's gone forever. Um, there is no concept of fraud. That's why credit card processors have such a hard time interacting with crypto. But I, I think this is going to actually bridge that gap. If it gets off the ground, the problem with these things is like you always move at the pace of the slowest executive, you know, involved with the project. And so um, you just got to like get those people excited and, and keep those people at the company for long enough where it actually plays out. The, I think the other challenge in addition yeah. to just like getting the, the last executive on the train is that there might event. This is the classic Clay Christensen disruption and why it doesn't necessarily happen from incumbents because you're to your point about blockchains being dumb payment rails. They're also very cheap payment rails when they start to operate at scale. And, you know, Visa kind of looks at its core business and they charge whatever they charge two and a half, three percent or whatever it is on transactions to merchants, they someone, some finance guy, probably a CFO or finance is saying, hey, this is this that two and a half percent makes up an enormous part of our core business. This is cannibalizing. And I'm sure there's some internal there's another part of Visa which is saying, hey, this is the way the world is moving. And then there's someone that's trying to defend the core business. And that's ultimately the tension that incumbents mm-hmm. struggle with. 
I think. Uh, last thing I'll say is like, if, if people are interested, go look at the financials of uh, MasterCard and Visa. They're very interesting. You know, they're not high growth businesses at this point, but you know, they're 60, 65%, you know, margin businesses. So really healthy, you know, free cash flow. They're each valued around like 300, 400 billion. Um, and you know, they're, they're not anywhere near as profitable as something like Ethereum, but they do pay dividends. And it's, it's a very interesting comp in terms of where, you know, these big L1 blockchains could go. Ethereum right now is about a third the price of either of those stocks. On the theme of being sort of positive and optimistic going going into year end, there is, and Jason, maybe you and I feel this a little bit more even than than others, just because we're involved in media and have a newsroom. But if you were to look at, if you were to look at the announcements that were kind of coming out during the bull run, and people like, oh, the price is going up because of X Y Z announcement. Nidig has another big partnership with a bank, or like you know another. El Salvador just bought Bitcoin or whatever. The news that's some of the news that's coming out during the bear market that gets absolutely no play is very significant. Like this is a huge announcement in my opinion. Right, Visa I also think using ETH would have sent ETH up thirty percent in the last bull market. Like this I also right. I yeah. I know I got some shade on this podcast for saying this, but Fidelity doing what they're doing, making at least like Bitcoin and ETH and custody accessible to a more institutional audience is I think it's a massive I think it's a massive deal. So there are these small incremental but like very meaningful bits of adoption that that are happening right now that people aren't paying attention to because frankly the price isn't going up but progress is still being made i think it's very yeah. very optimistic I have a, I, I, vince do you think that this will um this made me think about uh nft payment models uh, excuse me nft business models like right now the nft business model is bad like there's a bad business model around nfts which is why the conversation about royalties is such a big topic in the nft community it's because the original nft model of like one time drop and then royalties was like was like people saw it as a bad model do you think this moves nfts uh to subscriptions like do you think the new model of nfts in the next cycle will end up being more subscription based versus percentage of royalties based like right now if like let's say i own an nft but i don't i don't ever sell it like that doesn't that doesn't drive any value for the network and that doesn't drive any value for anyone um so like okay so permies if you own a permie right now you get access to blockworks research we charge twenty five hundred dollars a year for blockworks research but if you own a permie you get access to you get access to blockworks research for free it would be nice to be able to have an nft or like permies if they wanted access to blockworks research maybe there's like a, a fifty dollar charge a year or something like that i'm not saying this for permies specifically but like there's like a missing link in in the in the current model i feel like and and maybe subscriptions are it i mean i, I think it's going to be all of the above yeah you know there's going to be some that are subscriptions like I'm, this winter i've been looking at a lot of art blocks you know i'm not like a super fancy art collector but like i really do like those and i like the yeah. idea that the artists get paid and like that feels like it has product market fit with me things like d gods feel like they have product market fit with the solana people you know punks obviously have that like I kind of see it being a lot of different things, but I think the most impactful, you know, exponential growth will be the ones that, you know, have 2% goes back to the treasury is spent on something to develop the project. It's just like, you know, that's the only real huge upside model with NFTs. Not that they can't replace subscriptions. I just don't think it's like 10 times better than what exists right now. All right, everyone, quick break from this episode to talk about our show sponsors, Avalanche. Many of you know Avalanche as the fast, reliable and scalable layer one. Uh, the folks at Avalanche have a really great message for those of you who are in the crypto industry right now, which is 
bear markets are for building. So while a bunch of our uh, friends over in CFI are, are kind of going through these struggles and travails, the folks at Avalanche basically put their heads down and are shipping products that builders want. The latest solution, Elastic Subnets. Right, and just to expand on that, Avalanche is consistently upgrading all of their platforms, right? So on the platform side, you've got Elastic Subnets, you've got new VMs. On the infrastructure side of things, you've got Core, which Mike, I just, uh, I know you used that the other day. I was a, a bridge or. I was a bridge or. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so they're upgrading the infrastructure side with Core and Enclave. The chain has had like no downtime, super customizable for devs. Uh, yeah, if you're a builder, avax.network, uh, avax.network, great place to be. But do Yano and I as well. So you definitely go check him out, but click the link at the bottom of this episode. Click the link. Otherwise, we're not going to get any credit. Come on. Yeah, Give us click the, the link at the bottom. All right. Give us the credit. Exactly. So yeah, All big right. thanks to Avalanche. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you, it, you just had a great experience with them the other day uh, on the user side of things. So go check them out, guys. Thank us later. Let's get back to the show. Let's move past Visa stuff. Uh, exciting announcement. We'll, we'll, we'll keep eyes on that. The next one is, um, I don't know if there's anything you guys want to go over, but I thought Barry tweeting out the article. So... Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but so basically backstory, uh, Grayscale subsidiary of DCG, they've been obviously pursuing this conversation of their closed end, uh, turning their closed end fund GBTC into a a Bitcoin spot ETF over the past like two years, keeps getting denied by the SEC. Um, Barry's been pretty quiet about this recently. He tweeted out a Wall Street Journal article along with the caption, if Grayscale's Bitcoin ETF dreams fail, firm may try a tender offer. So I don't I don't know if you guys have seen that, but you should you should pull it up. Um, so the options the option here I think includes a tender offer for up to twenty percent of the outstanding shares, uh, and the trust is like I think roughly ten billion dollars right now. Um, this would be like a direct appeal to shareholders to sell their shares at a specific price during a specific time frame, and I think this led to a lot of confusion among folks. At least at least what I saw on Twitter. Um, because DCG would need a pretty significant amount of cash to repurchase shares that are currently trading at like a 40 or 50% discount to NAV. Um, so I'm just curious what, what you think of this. The high level of the whole situation is rumors that the whole is like 2 billion or something, or uh, DCG owes Genesis that about that amount. Um, and so this would be a 20% tender offer on a $10.7 billion trust, or, or call it 10 billion today. And so that's a $2 billion offer. And then they would you know, buy that at some sort of discount to spot, uh, GBTC spot. They would then need to go get approval from the SEC to do this. And I think they would need that approval because they would then take that GBTC, get a special approval from the SEC, convert it into Bitcoin, sell the Bitcoin, and kind of net the profits. And if you to do that- To cover the hole for Genesis? Th- this, is, this is what I was thinking, at least. It's like, you know, 50% discount, you know, 2 billion tender offer, you make 2 billion in profit. That roughly is like the same puzzle piece as the hole that's missing. So maybe that's what's going on. Um, but it's good to hear that there's a plan. The other stuff that I saw this week is like, Gemini Earn and creditors, you know, talking with Hulahan Loki to get them a, some sort of plan. It feels like it's getting better, at least more transparent. Um, and this feels like at least part of the strategy to to bolster everything. I feel like just at a high level, GBTC is basically the crown jewel, the enormous amount of basically Bitcoin that they have locked up in there and the fees that that's going to generate on a revenue basis. And there was a hedge fund fur tree that sued Grayscale and talked about it pretty publicly. He said they're very unhappy about the enormous discount that GBTC is trading at. And 
I think the tender offer is kind of, it fits, it fixes like a bunch of things. It's a way to get liquidity back to some of the shareholders, right? That aren't super happy about having their, their Bitcoin essentially trapped in GBTC, the structure. And you're also raising some money from, like Vance said, for DCG to basically fill the gap on, on Genesis. And if you also go and look at, you know, there's, there were rumors about this, right? This was reported on a couple of weeks ago that uh, Barry might be trying to sell Coindesk as well. And, you know, I, I think basically what he's trying to do is just prioritize within his fiefdom, what are the revenue streams and businesses that he cares about? And he's got to get enough liquidity to basically make Genesis whole. And then I assume he's got to shut that down. I can't imagine ever wanting to be in that business ever again. This has got to be a been pretty traumatic for him, to be honest. In a weird way, there's a perverse incentive for him to just like drag this out because if everyone sells their GBTC and it's trading at like, you know, 10 cents or, you know, 10% on, on the nab of, of the Bitcoin, you just buy that up and then wind the trust up and, you know, you profit 10x the difference. Like this is just such a dumpster fire, this this product. I, I really hope an ETF gets approved. Not because I want, you know, the industry to like benefit from that, obviously, but this is just such a bad look. And there's such a rolling disaster too. Like it's not going to get better in the next two years, probably at least. No. Do you think just out of curiosity, Vince, is this mechanically, if there's this tender offer and that ends up getting executed, does this mean there's going to be some sell pressure on, on Bitcoin? I mean, that's the other thing. That's why we're talking about, you know, you got Go Mount Gox, um, which is a, a insolvent Bitcoin exchange from the early 2010 aughts um, and they're distributing all the Bitcoin that, you know, they got. And that's, I believe, around three or four billion. That'll happen in January. You're going to have, you know, maybe this happening in, in January, February. You've got Core Scientific that just filed for bankruptcy yesterday. I don't want to rag on Bitcoin too much, but it's just like a lot of a lot of things that are going wrong right now. Hmm. The I, I guess the look, this this whole DCG thing is still being solved and there's some probably like short to midterm sell pressure, but there are basically, I think, three threats, sort of Damocles type things that are hanging over the market that could really impact price, which is sort of this DCG Genesis situation. There's Tether potentially and, and Binance. And frankly, like each, I don't know, those are, in my opinion, the three thing, the three threats that could probably send the market lower from, from here. And I don't know, I kind of think every day one of those things doesn't happen. It's looking mildly better. I do know that now there was a deadline that was passed for Gemini earn creditors, essentially, where they can file for suit. They're now, I think, the Genesis loan that, you know, ultimately your your counterparty is Genesis for the Gemini earn customers, so they can you can file suit against them. So I think some important date was passed, but basically every day I think that something drastic doesn't happen is like probably good, probably a relatively good sign. Um, I don't know. There's always I, someone I else you like can sell. You know, June to, you know, November, uh, July, August, September, October, November, you know, five months, these things have like a lag. Um, you know, someone fails, everyone pretends they're okay, someone else fails. Um, and so it's kind of like one interpretation is every day that doesn't happen, it's it gets better. And the other one is like, you know, every day that the earthquake doesn't happen, just like more pressure builds up when it eventually does unleash. So I don't think any of these other ones are going to go insolvent, but... I think it's more of a time thing. Like in by the end of Q1, we'll have all of this stuff behind us. I think we're going to be dealing with it for you know the foreseeable future at least. Mm. I do. I do think the the point taken there's definitely is a lag, but also these big blowups tend to happen at the very bottom of markets, not like at the beginning. Yep. Yep. They 
like the bottom is almost always marked by some enormous explosion and then it makes everyone extremely nervous. So I'm feeling very, and just maybe it was because I was, um, you know, we were going to do our predictions episode today. Now we're doing it next week. I was looking at some of the predictions that I made last year at the very top of the bull market. I, it was painful for me to read what I thought was going to happen. Some of these predictions, it was like, I don't even metaverse stuff. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I'll probably have to just, yeah, (laughs) that actually the one prediction that I got, I was like one for 10. The one prediction that got right was consolidation in exchange land. Didn't know why that was like the one thing that ended up being correct (laughs) for consolidation. Yeah. It was all this stuff. I mean, it was like, go back, rewind to like November of 2021. Dow buying a sports team did not come true. Dow buying a sports team. Yeah. It didn't come true. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're taking risks. All right. On these predictions. I'm not here to make safe predictions, but yeah, point taken. Not great. But I think the reason is because I was extrapolating what was happening. And I don't want to, you know, when we're talking about predictions next week, I think the temptation is to continue to extend these bear market negative sort of uh, predictions. But like probably, I don't know, my working thesis right now is the worst of it is behind us. And there's probably some period of apathy that we have to work through here before, you know, some sort of return to positivity. But I want, I have predictions on the theme of positivity. I would say there was a Coinbase survey they sent out. I, I don't know. I tweeted about this. But oh yeah, only eight percent of investors believe that crypto is going to go higher next year. That was and... that was pre FTX when that survey happened. Yeah, from October <laughs> of 2022. Yeah. So well, update. take a look. At... Things are worse. <laughs> <laughs> Things well, are escalated. Take, take a look at like go back to. It took basic like the the peak in 2017 was it was like November or December of 2017. Then look at where you were one year after that and look at what happened price action wise. Basically, like people forget that during a bear market, the price of Bitcoin at least like tripled. And just to give you a sense of like how bad sentiment was back then, the price of Bitcoin and crypto market cap overhaul like tripled and nobody talked. There was no talk about like a bull market returning. It was just like, yeah, it's going to go back down again. So I almost feel like we're reaching that level of sentiment where even like sustained price increases wouldn't convince people that things are going to be better. But that's what I've kind of been waiting for, to be honest. What do you think about that Vance as our perpetual optimist here? Thing, I mean, I've been in like much worse situations than this, so I'm not really too, uh, too nervous. It's just like a waiting thing. And my motto is always like, give it a year. If, if things are bad, just give it a year. If things will be better next year. I do think there's a lot of data on stock markets over the past 200 years of if you have a really bad year, the chances you have a double digit year the next year after that are, are generally like 75, 80%, you know, pretty good. Um, so that's kind of what I bias on. And I'm just aware that it's going to take a while, but I don't have anything else better to do, honestly, than, than do this. So this is, uh, this is kind of what I'm, you know, I love this. So I'm going to be here. Um, this is a story that I bet you didn't even see or didn't even follow, but uh, Yuga Labs named the former Activision Blizzard president as their new CEO. Um, so I don't know. I know you're not. I, don't, I know you don't follow the NFT stuff as closely, but Activision Blizzard, right? They are they're the they're the gaming powerhouse, right? They own Call of Duty. They own World of Warcraft. They own Candy Crush. They own one of the greatest games of all time, uh, time Tony Hawk Pro Skater One and Two. Uh, so this feels like game. such a good game. Phenomenal. Such a good yeah, game. one of the best. Yeah. Um, so I actually it's been I really all downhill like since Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Oh, honestly, <laughs> honestly, yeah, exactly. Bring me back. And I and remember playing that. Game? What was the really good snowboarding? Game? Oh my uh, god, on it's 1080. It's 1080 snowboard. That was that was phenomenal. 
yeah. so good. Um, uh, SSX tricky, yeah, uh, SSX tricky, also good. Anyways, so that like I love this move because I think a, one of the mistakes that crypto companies make is they don't uh, they don't bring in leadership from for folks who know how to actually scale. Um, because I think there's this like idea in crypto that like, oh, we're going up again. Like we're trying to build something really different, which is true. Like we're trying to build something really different and we're not going to really bring in any adults into the room because like, you know, the, the adults are who we're going up against here. And uh, if you actually look at, you know, some of the lending companies, I heard one of the biggest mistakes that they made that like the board of some of these like lend and borrow platforms that ended up blowing up. Uh, and just like CFI companies in general is the board would really pr- push them to bring in the kind of gray haired folks into the room and, uh, and they didn't do it. Right. And they kind of refused to do it and, and, and look what happened there. So I actually, I really like this move of, uh, Yuga folks stepping aside and bringing in this guy, Daniel Allegre to, to lead the company. Yeah. So I agree with parts of parts of that, which is, I think crypto under indexes on gray hair basically. And I think they're a really bear market take, by the way. You only say these yeah. things in a bear market. Yeah, but no, I mean, come on. But how how right did that turn out to be? You know, right. crypto oscillates between these two extremes of, hey, you know, we really need some adults in the room and some gray hair and people with experience versus at the peak of bull markets, hey, none of these old boomers get it. And ultimately, this is a new paradigm. And anyone who isn't a native is going to be left behind. I think the truth is probably somewhere obviously in between those two things, but I think crypto overall under indexes on experience and that's going to produce a couple amazing outcomes, but it's going to end in tears for a lot of other companies. So I, th- I think I like this move from that standpoint. Here's the thing that I, here's the thing that I'm struggling with mentally on NFTs and even just, okay. So this is the, the previous CEO of Activision. What are the lessons that you would have learned as the CEO of Activision? When I look at that, when I look at that company, they're basically in a, re- a relatively similar business to Disney in that the enterprise value that gets generated for that is in IP. How do you generate really good IP? IP, Mark Yusko is investing is a one man sport. He has a better way of saying it, but it's basically a one person thing with a vision. Same with directors, right? There's a reason why there's a director for a movie where there's, it's one singular person's vision and then you need to work with a whole bunch. You get, you get other people's input, but you need one vision. And I would guess that it's very similar with games as well. And there is this sort of narrative, right? Especially you heard this from Yuga Labs and Board Ape and all this sort of stuff that you were going to crowdsource and somehow it's going to be, you were going to create more powerful content because you had the input of all these different people. And that's frankly just not how I think content, really great content and IP ends up getting created. I think you do need input from a lot of people, but you need one person with a vision. I think the the business model for Board Apes, it's, I think it's, the playbook is sort of being written in real time, but it's not this like, how do I create the next call of duty that leverages crypto? I just don't, I don't think that that's skeuomorphic. I just don't think it's the right way of thinking about it. So my worry, right, the the bear case for bringing in the CEO of Activision is like, they're going to bring in some incorrect mental models and frameworks for how to develop good IP in crypto land. Yeah, I think that's a good take. I mean, I uh, I, I do think that, that NFTs are getting away though from like, how do we crowdsource IP and like build value bottoms up for uh, to build this IP? Like, I think they're bringing, I think folks are bringing in executives like uh, doodles did this too. They're bringing in like real executives to, to run this and, uh, and like have that vision. 
my I, I completely agree with you that it's a very skeuomorphic idea. I mean, they they clearly brought him in for other side, like the the land platform of board apes to basically figure out how to build other side into what I think would be their vision of like this really expansive world, not just a game, but like a whole world. Yeah, because sandbox games are really difficult. Uh, who's the company that makes Grand Theft Auto GTA? I forget, but there's this unbelievable company that does that. Um, and the amount of time that it takes to do that world, well, that world building, that's why there's an enormous amount of time that gets... Yeah, world that, building, yeah. Yeah, that happens in between each release. It's like sandbox games. The so sandbox model as opposed to like, you know, Call of Duty, you go figure out a campaign and then a sandbox model, you're sort of like Skyrim. And there's technically a campaign that you can do, but I used to play Oblivion a lot. I logged a lot of hours on Oblivion. I never played the campaign once. There are all these like side quests and everything that you can do that made it so fun. I could sort of see... Other side. Yeah, I did the same thing with Skyrim. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I I want to be supportive of I I feel like I come across as bearish a lot of times on NFTs. I'm actually super bullish, especially where gaming intersects with NFTs. That has always made a colossal yeah. amount of sense to me. But I think I think it's on it's on the onus of Yuga Labs to grow into a pretty large valid uh, valuation at this point. So yeah. they've got a whole bunch of different parts of their business. They raised money through a lot of different types of sales. There was kind of like board apes and mutant apes, and then there was other side the land sale, and yeah, it's sort of unclear. Yeah, it's kind of unclear as to what if you're an owner of any of those assets, what that really means. And then you have a huge valuation that got put on you there, and you need to find a way now to grow into the valuation that Yuga has. And I would love it if they do. It's a it's a daunting task though. They have they've got their work laid out for them. Well, one thing here. So what the one last thing, and then we can move past this is like I think their vision is that there's, I think their vision is that a singular game or a singular world will dominate all the other all the other virtual worlds in terms of like popularity and fun and utility, and that I think they also believe the future of gaming is through an integration with like NFTs and things like that. And I think they also believe that you have to raise a boatload of money to go do this. So they like check all those boxes, right? One of my qualms about that is with every other game in the world, you can just like, you can kind of just go join the game and you can just like jump in. But they, as part of their fundraising technique, they launched land in the other side, right? They, and, and there's like a fixed supply of this land. So like, let's say we're, I'm going to like jump into a game with like you or something like that. I don't need to own land to go do that. Um, but in, I think the way it works in other sides, you have to go own, own land to like jump in. Well, here's something I think just to leave the audience with something to think about, you know, Chris Dixon talks a lot about skeuomorphic ideas and you sort of have, when you go from one medium to another, for example, on, you know, before you had television, you had all these different things about how you were supposed to produce radio and you immediately tried to copy that over to TV. And then you were like, wait a second, we have the use of film and cameras and we should be taking advantage of all this stuff. But it was skeuomorphic in that transition initially. The... Metaverse land is pretty interesting because I think you can make a really compelling argument where people are trying to create artificial scarcity on land. Like the way the reason land has value in the real world is by real estate. They're not making any more of it, right? It's, there's a, a very programmed in scarcity there and it actually produces real stuff. And you could say on metaverse land, well, that's a stupid artificial skeuomorphic constraint. We should just create infinite, infinite land. But on the other hand, the way you price value is this marriage of supply and demand. If you have infinite supply, then nothing really has any value. Yeah. And if we're approaching it from a gamer standpoint, if any people played games on this, one cheat code in a game is actually kind of fun. 
if you play any game on infinite cheat codes, it automatically becomes unfun. You need some sense of like purpose and and achievement and adversity or whatever, even in gaming lands, right? It kind of mirrors that aspect yeah. of real life. So that's the one thing I've just never really been able to wrap my head around when it comes to to metaverse yeah. land. I, I don't have a strong here's, enough opinion on it. Here's what I'll say. There's three potential like metaverse builders of the future. There's like the Facebook and Microsoft builders. There's the like Fort Fortnite and like Minecraft builders. And then there's the like crypto crypto rails builders. And it's like uh sandbox and 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 folks like this. And I think right now it's on other it's on other side and on Yuga Labs. It's like it's theirs to win right now. Um and I th yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they pull it off. Yeah. What else? What else happened this week? Honestly, I think it was a relatively slow week. I think that's about it. Yeah. I, I mean, we already talked a little bit. I mean, the big story this week, right, was that we found out that Gary Wang and Caroline Ellison had flipped on SBF and that they yeah. were cooperating. I This is just a personal preference at this point. I'm just so done talking about SBF going into – I just really want to leave Me this too. behind in 2022. And I'm just – what more is there to analyze? It was a colossal fraud. He's going yeah. to prison. It. I think that can be the end of this of this chapter. Yeah. But I will say um, the last thing, just on the NFT note, I got a demo of. So Adam Brotman came on the Empire podcast to talk about like NFTs and Starbucks. And Adam brought. He was, I think, CEO or president of J Crew. He also created the Starbucks uh, loyalty rewards rewards program, which is the most successful one in the world. And I got a demo of the Starbucks platform that they're rolling out and it completely red pilled me on NFTs as not as like completely changing the game, but just as a better loyalty program, just in a, just a much more interesting extension of loyalty programs. And I think, I mean, this will be end up being maybe one of my predictions for the next year, year after that is like every brand is going to end up launching NFTs, every media brand, New York Times, Starbucks, everyone, everyone's going to launch, uh, launch NFTs. It's not going to be anything crazy, but it, it is going to be an interesting extension of, uh, of loyalty programs. So that was, that was my takeaway from like seeing a behind the scenes of this platform. I think it's, I would maybe, I actually agree with you. Maybe you're sort of starting to red pill me on this as well, but this is something you can go. This is where it's like, no, there are no new ideas in 2017. Marco Santori did a did a podcast on Unchained where he literally discussed exactly this. And he was like, blockchains basically allow you to enable coupons, right? This is something that companies already do. Airlines already do it with, you know, miles. And there's weirdly, airline miles are like semi-fungible. They're kind of fungible. But the the good thing about coupons in a, in a Web3 sort of realm is that you can actually track them. You can see real time who owns what. You can also see how long people have owned different things as well. So you can do these weird benefits where it's like, hey, if you hold on to coupon or NFT XY for some period of time, if you're Nike, you could get a special invite to this lounge with Michael Jordan, or you could see how you would st start to game those sorts of things. I think in terms of prediction, maybe I'd refine it to instead of everyone launches it, one or two brands launch it successfully, I would say. It's going to be a bear market, I think. Predictions after episode. You got you to wait for you. You got to wait for the actual predictions. <laughs> Come on now. Um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you're right. I yeah. I don't know. I I think you... I think Here's you what they'll be... call it. Here's a better branding. Here's a better branding on it than like brand-based NFTs is experiential loyalty. That's what, I, that's, what, that's what I would call this thing is experiential loyalty. Um, yeah. 
like current loyalty programs, if you think about them, they're not exciting, right? They're very like transactional and entirely focused on spend. But I think the loyalty programs of the future are like they incorporate digital ownership, like gamification, storytelling, and like I'd bucket that as like it's just experiential loyalty programs. I've got another weird one that I actually thought about this week that I think would be sort of interesting. I had a friend, I have a friend, I mean, he's your friend too, but I don't want to announce one. He worked at a, like sort of an e-commerce type company. He was telling me this thing when they tried to give out coupons, right? They're, ba- they're basically like discounts. And if you think about what you, as a company, what you're doing when you issue a, a discount, like, hey, take $250 off, that's a liability to, that you're basically issuing to your customers. You're saying, hey, here's 250 bucks that you're not going to have to spend on stuff that I spent money on. And it was this whole, you know, shit show because they didn't actually marketing didn't interface with finance they didn't talk about who they were issuing these discounts to and how many of the discounts they offered so suddenly all these people like way way more people than they thought were started to redeem these coupons and finance was like guys are you kidding me this is crushing this is crushing our numbers and our margin we had no idea it would actually be kind of interesting if there was some sort of chain where you could issue issue discounts that would apply blanket to different products like at blockworks say but then you could have a real-time understanding of who you issued how many how much you issued and who owns those different discounts and you could even have them expire at different times it could all just sort of be perfectly tracked i don't know as the as a person who thinks about that kind of stuff i think it would be it's a small thing but it's actually kind of a big thing it's pretty cool i think that would be yeah so i i hope some ultimately is that what we're all really here for no but is it cool and is it a thing that people and companies might use? Yeah, I do. I do think that it is. So I hope we make yeah. some of those improvements over the course of the next year. All right, buddy. We can uh, – I guess we can We can uh, spend a week. Thanks for listening, folks. We will uh, – next week – tune in next week. We were, we're going to have a big predictions episode with Michael Vance, uh, Mike, and me. So it should be a fun one. All right. Peace, guys. Cheers, everyone. See you later.